Holy shit, I can't believe it's been a week already. Okay, well, not exactly a week. It's been six days, but I was looking at stuff that I was going to talk about, and I realized I had enough, so I might as well do an episode. I literally just recorded like an hour last night for Patreon. I guess I'm just in a talkative mood this week. Uh, you know, when I, I think, I think I mentioned this in the last episode that is excited as I am to do these small talk episodes, I'm always afraid that like, oh my God, am I going to have enough stuff in seven days? Am I going to collect enough stuff in seven days to actually have something to talk about? Because the worst thing is to come in here with like three things and try to stretch those out because it's just, it's boring to me, it's boring to you. It's better when I have more stuff and I have time to talk about, which in and of itself is a stupid thing to say because it's my podcast. I go as long as I want. There is no less time. Although, I mean, let's be honest, if I were to drop a four hour episode, chances of you guys making it through that pretty slim, uh, in reality, chances of me making it through that are pretty slim. It was just uh, like, I pay attention to all these, uh, note taking, uh, note taking apps, the tutorial type stuff that people do on YouTube. I'm explaining this terribly. I watch a lot of YouTube tutorials on note-taking apps, specifically the note-taking app that I use, Obsidian. Uh, when I was using Rome, I used to watch a bunch about that app too. It's just, I like learning how to use my tools better. And it's funny that I say that right now, because literally the, the app just changed in front of me while my hands were in the air. It just changed to a different note. Apparently, maybe there's a feature where I could wave my hands and change notes. Um, yeah. So anyways, I was watching some of this stuff because I like getting nerdy on this stuff, but also it's, there's enough of this kind of stuff that if I start watching it, it fills up my front page of YouTube. So I don't get a whole bunch of political stuff, which I'm just as susceptible to watch as anybody else, but I don't want to, I want to be sucked down there. So instead I watch this, this app stuff and it, it helps me feel like I'm doing something useful with my brain. And one of these channels, the reason I brought it up originally, one of these channels just did like a tutorial explaining his whole system and it's over four hours, which is just wild. It's crazy, but I guess I've been hearing good things about it. I don't know that I could sit down and watch the whole thing at once, but I might have to check it out. Maybe. It's, it's kind of a good thing to put on in, like, I don't put on TV and, and stuff like that in the middle of the day, but that's something that I would put on during the day, maybe minimize to like one third of my screen on the computer and then use the other two thirds to be working on something. That's kind of a, that's a, that's a, I was going to say that's a good use of time. I believe that's an acceptable use of my time during the day. Uh, yeah. So four hours intense, I guess. That was a long way for me to say that. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because I've finally been um, starting to get some good sleep again, which means that, uh, number one, I'm starting to go, uh, starting to go to the bathroom like an adult again. <laughs> and number two, I am 
starting to have my brain come back online. I was writing about this in my journal today. It felt like for at least six months, like I've been, it, it doesn't feel this way when you're in it. You just feel off when you're in it. But now looking back, I feel like I was a car that was driving on one wheel, <laughs> maybe two. And, uh, I'm starting to get a little traction. My brain's starting to work again. And maybe that's the reason I have so much stuff in six days that I could talk about is because things are starting to actually uh, register with my brain again. One of the problems with sleep deprivation is that you start to lose some of your short-term memory, like things comes in and you register it, but it doesn't get stored because sleep is how you store things. So I could be ex exposing myself to interesting things during the week, but then like the next day, I don't remember it at all, or I didn't. And now I'm starting to, which is good. It's a good sign. And, uh, speaking of, uh, the bathroom, I just went, you know, before you go to record, I'm going to make sure everything's empty before you start recording and to go to the bathroom. I have to walk past the garbage can where I throw things away from the kitchen. And earlier today, I cooked some chicken and you, know, you buy chicken. It's on a little styrofoam and it's wrapped in plastic. Well, underneath the chicken is this little, it's like plastic wrapped paper. If you've ever opened chicken, you know what I mean? And it's, it's there, it's this little pad that they put in the chicken packages to absorb it. I guess you would call it chicken juice or chicken water. I don't know what the hell you'd call it, but it's to absorb the moisture from the chicken while it's being refrigerated. So when you take the chicken out and you cook it and you throw that thing away, there's this thing that's soaked in chicken. I'm just going to say chicken juice for the rest of it. This thing that's soaked in chicken juice. Well, I just, when I went to go to the bathroom, I walked past that garbage can. Holy God, does that smell? It's I, like, when I'm done with this, I have to go and I have to take the garbage and actually put it outside. You remember in, in Empire Stri Strikes Back where, uh, where Luke, is it Luke <laughs> or Han? I can't remember. It's been so long. I think where Han puts Luke inside the bantha, which is like the kangaroo slash llama looking thing and he cuts the gut open and all the heat comes out the way that you would think that smells that's what my back porch smells like right now and it honestly it, it makes me wonder where is the chicken <laughs> the juice from a chicken from the meat can smell like that after being at room temperature just for a couple of hours it's kind of terrifying and to be honest, that is an organic chicken. I can't imagine what the smell is like from those steroid mutants that everybody else are eating. I think I mentioned not too long ago that I was re-watching that uh, early 2000s TV show, Charmed. And uh, in that show, when a, when a demon bleeds, their blood is acidic. And that's what I thought about right now. It's just chicken bleeding acid juice all over my, all over my back porch. So that's what I'm going to be doing as soon as I finish this is going and taking out that nasty, nasty juice 
bad. It's just a terrible way to describe it. Oh, what stuff do we have to talk about here? So I watched the Joker movie this week. I'm not going to really talk about it because I think, pretty sure, like I had a lot to to say about that. And that might end up being something that I actually write out. Like I wrote, let's see, do I have it here? I think I have it here. I wrote out some thoughts about that movie and I have no idea where it is. So it's, yeah, it's going to be a topic of itself. It has to be, but I, I enjoyed it. It's definitely, I would say the most hardcore of all the DC movies, which I think is a good thing. Um, it's a good thing for them to open up for these kind of explorations of the characters. I mean, especially in the light of DC's reputation for between them and Marvel, for them being kind of the corny goody two shoes, you know, like I never, until I watched, this is not edgy, but until I watched the flash TV show that's on the air still, um, unfortunately, cause it's, it's not good anymore, but ever since I, or before watching that show, I never had any interest in The Flash. It was like, oh, whatever. Who cares about The Flash? And I could never stand Superman. Like, Batman was always cool, obviously, because Batman had the edge. I loved the Joker. Love, love the Joker. Probably my favorite comic book character of all time. Um, but, the, you know, like Green Lantern, all this stuff, like, it's always kind of hokey, right? Uh, so to see... DC opening up some of the edge. I think it's, it's a good thing. I, I don't know if they, you know, it's not like they can continue with it. Like, let's see what happens with Arthur after this. I don't think any of us really, it's just, dis- it's, it's, it's disturbing on a level of like a taxi driver. If you ever saw a taxi driver, because it, this is what the topic, if I talk about it, will be about. It's morally ambiguous in a lot of ways and that's really uncomfortable so you know like uh, something i wouldn't talk about in that episode but something I'll, I'll mention right now that's morally ambiguous and a little bit uncomfortable is the riots on the streets in the movie and the people wearing the clown face in a way kind of mirrors and i think about the time that it was being watched in theaters kind of mirrors like the Black Lives Matter protests. And that's a little bit uncomfortable because Black Lives Matter was something that, uh, for me, I was seen as a positive thing, like people standing up for something. But in the context of seeing it mirrored in that movie, I don't know if it was intentional or not, made it uncomfortable because in that movie, those protesters are terrifying. So that that kind of messiness kind of that's a the microcosm of the messiness that's in the macrocosm of that movie which is arthur himself which is joker's name in that movie joker's real name uh what is joker's real name in the comics it depends <laughs> like if you remember the 90s batman movie his name his real name was jack Napier. um joker has one of it's I, that's, I think this is one of the brilliant things about 
um, Heath Ledger's Joker beyond Heath Ledger's performance is the way that he was written. You don't know what his story is and it changes and you don't know what's a lie and what's truth. Like he's the complete trickster. And that's a great way to deal with the fact that in the comics, you don't know because they continually changed it. So I think that's, I think that's something I'd like to see these comic movies do more. And I think Marvel is starting to do it a little bit as well which is to deal with some of the and deal with some of that weirdness of the story being rewritten. You know, uh, I can't remember the word I'm trying to think of right now when retcon in comics, things are continually retconned, you know, like this person has a run with Iron Man and this is the way he tells Iron Man's story. Well, 20 years later, when somebody else decides that they they're going to be, you know, they, somebody famous or somebody well-respected in the field. They go, well, you should helm Iron Man for, you know, hundred issues or something like that. And their 100 issue run, they go back from the beginning and they rewrite the whole story. They retcon the whole thing. Um, actually I might not even be using retcon correctly there, but they rewrite the whole story over and over again. You know, there's so many different origin stories. There's so many different ways that Batman's origin story has been told and not just in the movies, but in the comic books, like probably three times more. So I think it's interesting when the movies kind of, they kind of deal with that. Like what can we, you know, like uh, this whole building thing that's going on with Marvel right now, which is going to be the multiverse and the multiverse can kind of explain some of these confusing things. Like, why do we have three different Spider-Mans? Well, we know because they're just movies and they're different actors and uh, the studio wanted to remake the movie because it made them a lot of money. But in the mythology of the story, you could explain that with multiverses. And a great, speaking of the Flash, a great example of that, the Arrowverse, which is that whole CW, DC TV show thing. They did something last season, which is how they kind of brought Arrow the TV show Arrow about Green Arrow to an end. And it was called Crisis of Infinite Earths. And it's based off of actual something that happened in the comics. It's this huge um, arc that happened in the DC comics. But in that, it has to do with multiverses. And so they got to do some really cool stuff played around with that. Uh, for example, they got to do... So in the TV show, in, in the CW TV shows, Superman is, uh, Taylor Kitchen, I think is his name. He has his own show now, like, uh, Superman and Lois. I haven't seen it yet because I'm not a huge Superman fan, but you have him as a representation of Superman, but in crisis and infinite earths, he also, they also run into, I don't remember the actor's name, but the guy who played, uh, Clark Kent on Smallville. And then they run into Brandon Routh, who was the Superman that, uh, I guess that was Superman four technically. So you had the three Christopher Reeves movies. And then a long time later, they did a Superman movie and it was only one movie. And, uh, I believe Kevin Spacey was Lex Luthor. Who knew he was an actual villain in real life, right? <laughs> Anyways, uh, that was Brandon Routh and they brought him in 
to that multiverse thing. And it's just really neat. And then you had uh, Grant Gustin, who plays Flash on the TV show, interacting with Ezra. Mm, can't remember his name. I want to say Ezra Klein, but that's a podcaster. The guy who plays Flash in the movies right now. They both had a scene together. And it's just like that kind of stuff is really interesting. Because instead of pretending like these things aren't happening because, you know, like we have to suspend our disbelief, I like playing with, playing with reality. I guess that's the best way to say it. I like playing with reality. Speaking of which, I, I read a very interesting, I'm getting tentative here because I was going to say book. It's not really a book because it's only like 54 pages long. It's more of a long essay or Back in the day, we might refer to it as a pamphlet. Um, it's called uh, The Occult Control System by David Pinchbeck. And it's a very interesting concept that he's, this is, this is not fiction. This is, uh, it's, it's weird to say that it's nonfiction because we don't know if anything he's talking about is true, but it's, it's intended to be nonfiction. Anytime I talk about the paranormal, it's hard to say that it's nonfiction because it might be fiction. It's not intended to be fiction, but he's talking about the idea of the control systems that, uh, like societal control systems and keeping the, whether there's UFOs, you know, what's, what's going on with all the, I mean, let me restate that there are UFOs because UFO means unidentified flying object. And we know just from the thing that they had with Congress recently, that in the last two years, the Navy off the coast of California has recognized like 140 different things that they can't identify. So we know the UFOs exist. We don't know if they are what we in the popular, you know, in popular culture refer to as the UFO. We don't know if they're UFOs in the sense that they're aliens. But the atoll, the cold control system is about the system that people talk about that hide that from the public and how about the concept of, of releasing it to the public disclosure is what the term is. I'm talking about this because I don't know, I'm talking about this in terminology because I don't know how many of you already know about this stuff and already know some of this terminology. I know it's not my job to necessarily educate you, but I don't want to just go off on a tangent and be like, I have no idea what he's talking about. We're just talking about comic books. <laughs> so what I found interesting about the book, I'm not going to go into the ideology of the book because, um, there's a lot to digest, even in those 54 pages. So it may end up being something that I, I write about, or it's just Maybe something that plays into something larger for me. But what I found very interesting is how Pinchbeck approaches some of the concepts in the book. Because it, one of the things, reading a lot of books in the paranormal field, one of the things that you will notice is there's a and I've heard this without sounding like a complete dick. I'll say it the, the, the dickish way, and then I'll try to clarify into a nicer way. There's a lot of lack of rationality. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of lack of rational thinking, 
There's a lot of lack of uh, taking things tentatively and examining things. And there just tends to be a lot of jumping to conclusions, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, you know, like if you buy a book about uh, the CIE and uh, the same type of thing, keeping the UFO secret hidden, you're probably going to be reading a book about somebody trying to convince you of a concept. This is what happened, and this is why I believe this is what happened, and this is my evidence. Argument-based, right? There's, there's no, when I said there's no rationality in the sense that there's no contemplation on whether they have the right answer because they're convinced they have the right answer, and that's why they're writing the book. That's not what Pinchbeck does here. In fact, uh, when I first started reading it, I got a couple pages in, and I thought, Maybe because I expected it being a book in that field to do the same thing. And to some degree, I think he's, he seemed like he was doing it, but what he actually does is he presents an idea that a person or a group have, and he kind of follows the idea to its conclusion. And then he moves on to another one that's in some way, not necessarily contradictory, but different. So, and he's not getting into the whole weighing the differences between the two. He's also not trying to hide from, hide his opinion. And when we get near the end of the book, he says, this, this one is one of the ones I tend to believe more and so forth and so on. This is what I think we should do, which is balance the masculine and the feminine aspects of the mind, blah, blah, blah. Um, that kind of stuff. But what I found really interesting was the way he was able to present things and take them to their depth, but not latch on to any of them in a particular way. And it made it very interesting reading because I could, it's like taking this idea that he's presenting of the occult control system. And instead of making an arrow, which is what an argument usually is. He took me for a tour around the grounds, like around the perimeter, and then let, let me kind of decide, you know, gave me his opinion of what we just looked at together, but then kind of let me decide. And I thought that was more conducive to presenting an idea like this than the other way, because the other way, I don't know if everybody reads like this, but I, uh. I tend to argue with books. If it's a paper book, I write things in the column. You know, sometimes somebody says something stupid and I just write, fuck you. Just write it right in the margin. And when you're, when somebody's presenting an argument that encourages that type of discourse, because they're presenting something. So you either have to swallow it or you push back, right? It's, it's a dichotomy that's set up. And when somebody does what Pinchbeck did with the occult control system, that doesn't happen. Now, I, I, certain things, you know, like, uh, this person's belief about abductions, like, no, I don't buy that. That's fine. It doesn't stop me from, uh, moving forward because what tends to happen, I'm sure you've all 
gone through this, if you've read nonfiction or even if you've read articles, even news articles, you know, like if you are liberal and you read an article on Fox, you would probably feel this way going through like, nope, not buying this or vice versa. If you're conservative and you're reading a liberal argument, you would feel the same. You're not buying it, right? There's this, it's this, it sets up an either agree or disagree um, circumstance. So if you're reading a book and you're, we'll say 25% of the way through it, and you've hit like three or four snags where you're like, no, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that. I think over time it can create a certain distrust with the author, right? Like, well, at a certain point, you know, you're you're human. You're going to think this person is an idiot. There's a book that I'm reading right now that I'm not even going to reveal because I want to go through that I'm having a lot of trouble with because I think the overall argument that's being presented has some merit to it. But in the process of reading this book, there are so many logical errors that the author makes, like just stupid stuff, factual errors as well, that it makes it really hard to continue, even though I think there may be something compelling about the overall argument. Because yes, it's possible for someone to be an idiot. It's possible for someone to be wrong about a lot of aspects of something and still be presenting a possibly true argument. You know, sometimes people who are wrong still stumble on the truth every once in a while. It's just, that's that's the brutality of statistics. That's just the way it works. So I recommend if you're, if you're into UFO stuff or if you're just into, uh, interesting presentations of strange, I don't want to say strange, I want to say non-mainstream arguments, check that book out and let me know what you think of it. It's if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free right now. Like it's, it's in Kindle Unlimited. So if you're already paying for Kindle Unlimited, you can read it for free. I'm sure to buy it since it's only like a 54 pages, it's probably pretty cheap. And truth is, I probably shouldn't say this, but because it's short, you might be able to hunt around and find a free PDF of it online somewhere. So, uh, also, Hey, I don't know if you care about this, but I do. Ted Lasso is back. And, uh, man, I love that first season. I think everybody, everybody loved it. I don't know anybody that watched that first season was like, man, it's okay. It was such a surprise, such a surprise pleasure. And I waited. Like, if you've been listening long enough, I've talked about this once before. I waited. I'm one of those people that doesn't jump on the bandwagon. Everybody's talking about a show. I'm like, "Mm, that means I'm going to wait even longer to watch it. I finally watched it and this was, you know, whatever. I don't remember how long ago, six months ago. And I loved it. I mean, loved it. Second season, two episodes in, they're doing the, 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 I don't know how they did the first one because I was behind. I don't know if they dumped the whole season at once, 
but they're doing the, the thing where they only drop one episode per week, which personally I prefer because it prevents me from binging. So far, two episodes. Ugh. Sorry. Sorry, Ted Lasso. First episode, didn't like it at all. To be honest, I got to the end of it. And I'm like, oh, that wasn't engaging at all. Second one was a little bit better, maybe because there's some, some storylines starting to build a little bit. It's still very possible that it's just picking up speed and then it's going to change. And, you know, I don't remember how I felt after watching the first episode of season one, but I have a feeling that just because it's the beginning of the story, it was probably engaging, you know, story. You don't know who this character is. So that's, there's this, uh, this interest already built because trying to figure out who this character is and where's he going, what's going on here, who are these other people, what's the relationships going on here. So I don't want to say yet that Ted Lasso is in a sophomore slump, but I do think we should talk a second about the sophomore slump. If you don't know what the sophomore slump is, I'm sure it's used in other circumstances, but the way that I know it most is with bands and albums. Sophomore slump is like when, for example, you're Nirvana and your first album, technically your second album, your first major label album is huge. Actually, let's, let's use that. That's murky because Bleach wasn't a full album. Um, let's use Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam, first album, huge, right? 10 was huge. And then comes, um, shit, I don't remember what the second album was called. Uh, and now that album is respected, but at the time I remember everybody using the term sophomore slump. The reason that it's talked about is usually, oh man. It's kind of like when we talk about uh, sequels, it's never as good as the original, you know, there are obviously exceptions to that. Many people would argue that Terminator two was better than the original Terminator, which I don't think you can compare them because one's a horror movie and the other one's an action film. And I, I like them both, but the sophomore slump is the idea of Meh. Second album was meh. And it's inevitable. It's inevitable because uh, there's two big reasons for this. We're talking about bands here still, but I think it can be applied to Ted Lasso, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it. The first album a band has, it's the first time we hear them. But who knows how long that band's been together? And even if the band is new, who knows how long the people that are in that band have been playing instruments, writing pieces of songs. They have a lifetime of things to put together into seven to 15 songs. You know, maybe the guitar player and the bass player and the drummer just met a year ago, but that guitar player has been playing guitar for 20 years and he might have many years of odd little riffs laying around and the drummer might have 15 years of drum patterns that he's been messing around with and the bass player might have this and somebody might have a book of poetry somewhere you've got your whole life to pull from to make that first album and because you want it to be as good as it possibly 
can be because it's your first album. You try to put all the best of all the stuff that you've collected into that first album. And boom, if it's a hit, that's awesome, right? But then you got the record company going, sweet. Oh, this is so awesome. When's the next album coming? And now instead of 20 years to write your first album, you've got less than 20 months. You've got probably less, sometimes less than 12 months, you know, cause they want it out in here. So you got to get it done and, and ready. And now all of a sudden you've got to put songs together and you've used all your best stuff up. And you haven't been sitting around writing music because your album was huge. So you probably were on tour. So sometimes this second album isn't as good. Why? Because there's a whole new work ethic that comes with writing music on that schedule that you're not used to, right? Because like I said, you had your whole life for the first one. And there's a second reason for the sophomore slump. If you're first, the sophomore slump almost always, as far as I know, applies to when the first or well, the freshman effort is huge, is successful. Otherwise, nobody would be talking about the sophomore effort. You know, we wouldn't be talking about the second album. The reason the sophomore slump also happens is because it, it the first one is so big, so big. Wow, this is so good. The chances of the next one being better is not 50-50. You know, if that one's so good, you could have just like hit on some extra magic. And yeah, maybe the next one's not going to be as good because everybody's expectations are just too big. It happens to writers too, sophomore slumps. If you write like the worst thing I've always said that if, if, even though I'm working my hardest to make my first novel as great as it possibly can be, and yes, you want it to be successful, but I'm terrified if it were to become super successful because no matter what you do after that, the next book is always going to be less. So. That's, that's a little insight into the sophomore slump. I think, uh, sometimes it can be a good thing. You know, Bob Dylan, when he, this, he didn't have a sophomore slump, but when Bob Dylan, uh, I don't remember what preceded. There's so many albums in Bob Dylan and his history is so long, but there was a certain point where Bob Dylan started feeling the weight of expectations on his music. And now this is a story. I don't think this came from Bob himself. This is a speculative story, but let's pretend that we know it to be true. He kind of wanted to relieve some of that expectation, some of that tension, because as you can imagine, it's really hard to create when people have created this box, right? So sometimes, uh, an artist has the guts to make something mediocre or bad or weird just in order to scare off all of the fair weather fans. And so that the only people left are the people that can weather them through that ugly stage, 
Um, the album for him was self-portrait. It was a double album. The single like had almost, you know, like here's Bob Dylan known for lyrics. And this, I think the lyrics were something like oh, all the tired horses in the field. And it's just, and I think uh, he had female vocalists, so he like barely sang on the song and it wasn't a great song. It's not a terrible song. I tend to, I happen to like the song. It was just a really weird album. And the theory is that he did that to shake everybody off so that he could create freely this next album. And sometimes people do this also to keep record rules to drop them. <laughs> um, another case, and I don't remember the album, but another case of, of making something um, unexpected, I guess Susan would have said it, in order to shake people off and their expectations off. Joni Mitchell did that. At one point in her career, she made an album that everybody was like, ooh. And then she was like, thank God, now I can go back to writing songs the way I want to. <laughs> it takes a lot of guts to do that. So there's a benefit sometimes to doing that. So in a way, even if like the rest of season two of Ted Lasso is kind of meh, I'm not saying bad, because bad would not be a good thing but just kind of, it's okay. That might be really good because it might set them up for longer term success. Because the thing about Ted Lasso is that first season is so propulsive, but so much of it, uh, at least emotionally and uh, interpersonal among the characters, um, all the tension is relieved pretty much at the end of that season. And the question then is like, yeah, we know that like, you're not in that league anymore. And now you want to, you want the team to win. That's kind of the only thing that's left open. But then you start wondering like, what else is there to tell about these characters? What other story do we have about these characters? Like it's only two episodes in, but the, I don't remember her name, but the team owner, um, Ted's boss. Her role in the season so far is kind of a non-role. Like she's in scenes and she's talking to people, but like, what's really going on with her? Like she's dating and it's not really very interesting for her character, right? There's not a lot going on there because we kind of resolved like her big thing in the first season where it's like, she was so angry and she wanted them to lose and like she was hiding it and pretending to be nice, but underneath. Like that's what kind of propelled that character. But with all that taken away, because it was resolved, it's like, now, now what do we do with her? Because that was, you know, she's not a real person. She's a character. So when you have a character like that, that like 90% of their makeup, their composition is that drama. And then the drama is relieved. That means 90% of the character is now gone. And now you have to build something with the 10% of the character that's left. And that could be very difficult. So like maybe a slump season is a good thing because you can kind of feel those things out and then develop, develop from there. You know, like, um, this isn't an example of that, but this is an example of things going the way that they weren't expected. And I guess making lemonade out of lemons TV show, um, so I just totally blanked NYPD blue. The first season of NYPD blue, the main character was David Caruso 
You might remember him as the red-headed guy from NCN, NCI, no, no, not NCIS, CSI Miami. The sunglasses, right? And he'd always pull his sunglasses down and then say something and then put them back up. Okay? That guy. He was the lead of NYPD Blue. And Dennis Franz was just kind of a secondary character. He was just kind of, he was his partner, but he was also secondary. Like they didn't, there wasn't a lot of thought put into who Sipowitz was. Well, David Caruso, if a story is true from the way I remember it, he got a little big for his britches. And he said, I'm a star. I am a star. And he decided he wanted to go make movies. So he ditched the show. And he went and made this really weird, which um, at the time was a flop, but I wonder if it's actually good, a movie called Jade. And it's kind of like a sexual thriller. And then, like, it was a flop at the time of the movie. I know that. So his career was kind of like, meh. And until, like, I don't know how many years later it was that he got on that CSI show, he didn't really have a career. Well, the TV show had the, the whole, that whole first season is like a different show because it's all revolved around David Caruso. It's a one-star show, right? You know, there are two kinds of shows in general. There are the one-star shows and then there are ensemble casts where you have multiple characters, you know, something like The Office or Parks and Rec. Um, those are both comedies, but you get my point. Well, you have other shows that are really just like about one character. And that's what this show was. It was going to be just about David Crusoe's character. I can't even remember his character's name. And he leaves the show and they're like, oh my God, what do we do? And they could have just got somebody in to kind of replace him. Like, uh, do we know any other kind of gravelly voice redhead guys that can play a cop? <laughs> or you know, try to bring in somebody with a similar vibe and they try to do something like that. Like uh, CSI did that you know, when uh, Grissom left and they brought in Ted Danson. They made his character in some way similar, like he's kind of a weirdo. You know, they kind of tried to ride a similar vibe. But that's not what NYPD Blue did, is they said, okay, what we're going to do then is we're going to take Franz here, who's like this, who wasn't meant to be the lead. We're going to make him the lead. And you know what? He looks a lot more like what a cop actually looks like. And so they started stretching his character out. And then for a while, I, I only think I only saw like six seasons of the show, but for a while they dealt with him and his alcoholism. And they dealt with him going through AA and they, it was like the first time that was ever done really on television. I think it definitely was the first time it was ever done, uh, dealing with alcoholism among police officers on television, but it may have been the first time that like alcoholism and, uh, AA were done to that extent. And that was just because of the bad thing they could have just been like oh damn it but no they like credit to those writers for going no we could do something with this and the show ended up being a lot better than it would have been because it was kind of a cheesy show when it was caruso but then it got gritty i don't know if you remember this but like 
some of you might not even been alive, but that show got in trouble because, uh, was it Caruso and Franz at one point? They both showed their ass on television and a man's ass had never been seen on broadcast television before. So they got really edgy and really gritty. Um, yeah. So Ted Lasso, I'm still here with you. And uh, I love the characters. I really do. And I, I mentioned last time I was reading that book, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, about a seagull. Man, that book was so good. Another short book, but it's, it's a surprisingly good book because it's so, so simple. And you know, it's weird because it's about a seagull, but it's, it's written very simply. I don't know how to put this better. It's, it's making profound hints at things without actually going into extensive long passages, trying to make you think or believe something. It's literally just telling the story of the seagull. And you're kind of realizing things as it's going on. I'm like, oh, that's kind of a metaphor, but it's kind of, it's just really loose and it's really kind of straightforward. It just kind of plows through the story. And because of that, I think it becomes very profound. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because I was, I don't remember why. Oh yeah. For the, the website, I have a list of all of the books that I, that I read and share on the books till you barf Instagram so that if people want to go buy them, they can buy them. And then we can my, use my Amazon affiliate links so that, you know, maybe I could get a little kickback. Um, to help support the show. So I was putting up the link, the affiliate link for Jonathan Livingston Siegel. And when you do this, when you go to pull the affiliate link from the Amazon affiliate, uh, Amazon associates, I guess is what it's called. Amazon associates website. It pulls up all the products throughout Amazon, you know, cause Amazon just doesn't sell books. It pulls up all the products that what you've typed in fits. And I saw something, I clicked on it and I was like, oh no, this isn't the book. What is this? Oh, it's a movie. They made a movie of this. They made a movie, a movie. They made a movie about a seagull. <laughs> and I thought, well, oh, that's ridiculous. But the more like when I was typing it in here to talk about that, I was like, you know what? Should I watch that? Like if it's available, should I watch that? Should I check out? This movie about this movie about a seagull. I mean, I've checked out a book about the seagull. Why not watch the movie with the seagull? But can it be that good? Because oh, this is the hard thing about sometimes taking this, this Hollywood conception of like, oh, the book was good. We can make a movie out of that. Not always. Because sometimes what makes a book good is the narrator. And the one thing that you lose when you make a movie is the narrator. Sure, you can have voiceover, but you can't have voiceover to the extent that you do in a novel. You know, like it, for every 20 paragraphs that a narrator says in a book, you can put what, two or three sentences on the screen. No one's just going to sit there and listen to someone read the book. But sometimes all the insights and all of the interesting thing about the book is in the narrator. And that's why I think like, like if I think just about what the action and dialogue that happens in that book 
it's only like at best 50% of the, of what is already a very stark and minimal book. So hold on, let me, let me drink a little bit of water here. Getting a little dry. If you're wondering why my throat always gets dry, there's two reasons. Number one, I'm still, I haven't figured out how to be a, now, a mouth, sorry, how to be a nose breather when talking. I still have, when I talk, I still breathe through my mouth. And number two, it's been hot. So I have a fan on and the damn fan blows air into my open, my open gaping mouth. So that's why, oh man. The last, the second to last topic that I'm just like saving for the end is like a big one. It's going to require me reading like five paragraphs. Let's, should I rest up my throat? <laughs> I remember, I remember, you might remember last week when I said that I was kind of going through some Third Eye Blind albums. I, and I said, oh, it was really interesting to follow the whole trajectory of their career. I never made it further <laughs> than where I mentioned in the episode. I, I kind of lost interest. Kind of lost interest because while I said the music is kind of of consistent quality, what I started to notice, and I don't know if I should say this because if you like them, it might ruin them for you if you hear this and you've never heard it before, but he kind of used the same melody for every song. After a while, I'm like, oh yeah, I know this song. Oh, no, I don't. This is a different song. Sounds like the other song, which is kind of like, uh, what was that? Nickelback, right? They, all of their songs kind of sounded the same because they all had same kind of the same melody, different variations of the same melody. I started to notice that. I was like, oh, maybe uh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. But Spotify being Spotify, spying on you. Well, not spying on you, but watching you, watching your habits, analyzing your habits. Because they want to recommend you to keep listening, keep keep checking stuff out. So they, oh, you've been listening to Third Eye Blind. Well, did you know that they have a new single out? Of course, I didn't know that because how do any of us know anything about new music at all anymore? Uh, that's an old man complaint. But they have they had a new single apparently. I don't know how new it is, but a box of bones. And I was like, you know, fine. Let's let's see what they sound like in twenty twenty one. So I put this song on, it's, it's not a very good song, to be honest. That's that same melody, but like, it's weird. It like has, the dynamics of the song are terrible. Um, but I noticed something. This is, this is going to be, I have to be careful how I talk about this because I don't want to give the impression that I'm, I'm ridiculing here because I'm not. But I noticed something in the song because of the particular lyrics that I never noticed before. And I thought it was my imagination. So then I did an internet search and it proves to be, at least according to the internet, according to Reddit, I think that's where I found it. True is that Stephen Jenkins, singer of Third Eye Blind, has a speech impediment. And it's called rhoticism. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Rhoticism, also known as Elmer Fuddism, which is probably not a nice thing to say, 
It's when people have difficulty pronouncing their R's and they pronounce them as W's instead. So how did I notice it in the song? It's because there's some of the lyrics. He, for somebody who has somewhat difficulty saying R's, he puts a lot of R's in his, in his music. Although, I mean, it is one of the more popular letters. But it was a, a, a parody of connection, a cold wall, analog. You're coming like a cloud burst. Nothing is pre- precious. When you're ready for the, for your knives, I woo up taking the servant stairs. Now what's, what's interesting here is this line here. Nothing is precious when you're ready for your knives. What's interesting about that is he seems to have a selective problem with the pronunciation of that letter because he says precious perfectly, which is an R precious, but then ready becomes ready. And, as, and there's, an, there's another point in the song where he says a word that begins with an R and he says the R correctly. And I just thought that was really interesting. And I never noticed that before, but then I started thinking, I'm like, oh yeah, he always did kind of had a, a weird inflection to his words. And there's that one time in uh, Semi Charm's kind of life where he says grow, but he doesn't say grow, he says grow. I always, I don't know, maybe I just always thought it was an accent. Anyways, yeah, speech impediment. So even uh, more credit to him for having such a long career, for uh, having a speech impediment. And by the way, I don't know how many of you have seen this movie, but there was a movie uh, back when Mark Wahlberg was just kind of starting out as an actor. He did a movie called Rockstar. And that... It's been a long time since I saw that movie. I'm sure in a lot of ways it's probably, <laughs> I remember particular sections about, uh, eating pussy that most people will probably find offensive. I'm, I'm sure and there's more scenes than that in there. But I remember really enjoying the movie because it's, it's, it's a comedy essentially. And, uh, Mark Wahlberg becomes a singer for a metal band and Steven Jenkins is in that movie and he's like this, it's, I think it's a cover band. If I, if I remember correctly, it might be a heavy metal cover band. I can't remember. It's been a long time since I saw the movie. I'm pretty sure at least Steven Jenkins is the singer for a cover band, but he's in that movie playing the singer of a, a metal band. And when we're talking metal band. We're not talking like Slipknot era metal bands or talking Iron Maiden, uh, Judas Priest era metal bands, that kind of vibe and that kind of sound. So, uh, I would recommend watching that movie. I might have to find it and rewatch it because uh, maybe it's awful. <laughs> oh, I missed one. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to say. I think last week I talked about super savers, <clears throat> ways to save money. I talked about having the Kindle Unlimited and the Scribd uh, subscriptions and how those can save a little bit of money. And this week I had a perfect example. There's a book that I wanted to read on this kind of topic. So basically I've been working on an episode about the Amazon and Amazon. The, the, I should clarify this. 
the rainforest and the jungle at the company uh, I've been kind of working on something about that. And I ran across a sideline that it's probably going to end up being a whole separate episode. But in order to do that, I needed to read this book on ethnobotany. And I went to go buy it. And I just burped. I'm not kind of that. I don't feel like editing tonight. Uh, I went to go buy it on Kindle and uh, it's a physical book. I see the physical book, $49 because essentially I guess it's when you see things that are that price, they're usually considered like a textbook. So I was like, okay, well then I don't want the physical anyways. What's, what's the Kindle? $45. And that happens a lot with these like textbook priced books. And I was like, I'm not paying $45 for, for a Kindle book. No. Ever. No. So I went into Kindle Unlimited, like, oh, maybe it's in here. No, no such luck. Go over to Scribd. Yep, it's in Scribd. So I spent, instead of having to spend 49 or $45, which I wasn't going to do to read this book, I got to read it free with my $10 a month Scribd subscription. So it's another great argument for bookworms having something like Scribd. You know, it'd be great if these companies were sponsors, since I'm sitting here whoring out for them. All right. One more thing, and I don't know how long I'm going to go on this because I imagine I could go long and we're already an hour. You might just have to buckle in. This is something I ran across on Reddit. And if you know anything about my interests, you may or remember a period of time when I did episodes on this. I'm a bit of a true crime person. I don't want to say aficionado, but I'm a bit of a true crime lover, true crime junkie. Uh, so one of the, I think is probably the case that got me to become like that was the case of the Zodiac killer in California in the 1960s. And this thing on Reddit is about that. This is a post in the subreddit, Unresolved Mysteries subreddit. It is posted by user Whale Manhunter. And the title, I'm going to read this whole thing because, what is it? It's like five paragraphs, not long, but I'm going to read the whole thing. So the title is the author of the 1967 letters sent after the murder of Sherry Jo Bates. Bates has to die. There will be more has been identified via DNA. He is not the Zodiac. Okay, so before I read this, let me give you a little bit of background so that uh, you can glean something from this. So I'm not going to tell you what the Zodiac Killer was, what the whole thing is. If you want a primer on the Zodiac Killer, pause this, go watch the David Fincher movie. It's not perfect, but it'll give you a primer essentially on what the case is. Or find a podcast, a true crime podcast. And I'll break it down for you. But after the Bay Area murders, they started, uh, detectives started researching. This is back in the, actually this time, probably in the 70s. Um, they were doing the research and somehow they, I don't remember the whole story of how they found the murder of this girl in Riverside, California, which is all the way down in Southern California uh, in 1967, which preceded 
all the killings in the Bay Area. And when this girl, Sherry Jo Bates, she was inside of a public library. Um, something was wrong with her car. Like the, uh, they believe that the killer disconnected the cables to the battery. So she was having car trouble. They assumed he probably approached her because she was found like a block away between these two houses and she had been stabbed. So that's, that's the general idea of how she died. And then later the police received a letter and in the letter, which it says here, you know, Bates has to die. There will be more. Um, the killer kind of taunted the police and then they signed it with this weird thing on the bottom, which was kind of like a Z with a little weird curl on it. So the reason I think that detectives in the Zodiac case were interested in this, uh, it may have been reporters that found this first, was because the Zodiac killer in the Bay Area also taunted the police with letters. Uh, and Zodiac happens to begin with Z, and that letter had a Z, right? Even though the Bay Area Zodiac letters were not signed with a Z. They were signed with a circle with a cross through it. So there'd been long speculation that this may have been uh, his first or an early kill. Like he was learning to kill, and then that's how, then he ended up becoming the Zodiac and doing all these things, right? So that was this huge, um, huge theory. And anytime you would check out stuff about the Zodiac, people would throw in the Sherry Joe Bates case, which always bothered me because I knew enough to know that the Riverside police had argued adamantly since the beginning that it wasn't related. And considering that they know more about the evidence that they had in the case and so forth, I kind of always leaned with them a little bit more and thinking that, yeah, this probably wasn't it. And Zodiac, the person who wrote the Zodiac letters, tend to be, come across kind of as a, a braggart. So of course, when that came out, he would take credit for it because it only raised his reputation. So that's what this is about. They're saying that they took this letter and DNA has been identified. And now they know via DNA that that letter was not the Zodiac. So let me read it now. From the update published by the Riverside Police Department's Cold Case Unit. On October 31st, 1966, at 0545 hours, Joseph Bates called Riverside Police to report his daughter Sherry Jo Bates missing. She left a note for her father stating she was going to the RCC library on October 31st, 1966 at 0632 hours. A civilian reported that he found a body in the alleyway of Terracina near Fairfax on the RCC College campus. Officers responded and determined the death to be a homicide. The female was identified as 18-year-old Sherry Jo Bates. In 1967, Riverside Police Department received a handwritten letter in the mail. This letter initially led investigators to believe the murder of Sherry Jo Bates may be associated with the murder known as Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer. The letter and the interpretation of the signature of the letter generated much attention to the investigation and fueled many theories and much speculation regarding the case. 
In addition, sensitive information was released to the media, which added to the curiosity and conjecture. Here's where things get interesting. In April 2016, investigators received an anonymous letter postmarked from San Bernardino, California. This letter was typed and appeared to have been generated from a computer. The author of the anonymous letter admitted to writing the handwritten letters. The author apologized for sending the letters and said it was a sick joke. The author admitted that he was not the Zodiac killer or the killer of Sherry Jo Bates and was just looking for attention. In 2020, the Homicide Cold Case Unit and the FBI Los Angeles Investigative Genealogy Team submitted the stamp from the letter for additional DNA analysis and sub subsequently and subsequent interviews were connected. Jesus. Let me say that again. And subsequent interviews were conducted. The individual linked to the DNA evidence on the stamp admitted to writing the letter and sending it to Riverside Police Department. The author was a young teenager at the time and had a troubled youth. He said he wrote the letter seeking attention and was remorseful for his actions. Investigators confirmed the person was not involved in the murder of Sherry Joe Bates or involved in the murders associated with the Zodiac Killer. Additional information was developed regarding a separate set of letters sent to Northern California police agencies. The author claimed to be the Zodiac Killer, but the author ultimately admitted to sending the letters to keep the investigation going. Okay. So, just in case that wasn't super clear, I had that letter from 1967 saying, you know, I did this, I did this. And in 2016, they received a letter from someone in San Bernardino, California, that said, okay, I admit, I am the person that wrote that letter, but I didn't kill Sherry Joe Bates, and I did not do any of the Zodiac killings. I was just trying to glom on to the case and get some attention. So four years later in 2020, Homicide Cold Case Unit, the FBI, Los Angeles investigative genealogy team, they took the stamp from that 2016 letter and they flipped it over, assuming that he licked it, idiot, and they got a DNA profile and then apparently they matched it. And they interviewed the person that had matched. They did some time and it's like, okay, he was a little young, possible, but not possible. And then apparently they have other reasons to eliminate him from the Sherry Joe Bates case. And I assume he can't be connected to the Zodiac case because he was a teenager and he probably didn't leave Riverside, California. So he probably wasn't in Vallejo and Berryessa killing people. Not to mention the fact that the Zodiac killer was mentioned, was described as a middle-aged man. Uh, back in, I don't remember if it was, it wasn't 67. So this would be after the Zodiac. So in the order of things, 66, Sherry Joe Bates was killed. 67, the person sends this letter claiming credit for the killing of Sherry Joe Bates. Then a few years later, we have the killings going on in Northern California. Zodiac killer after that, and after the police found out about the Riverside case, 
the same person who sent the 1967 letter to the Riverside Police about Cherry Joe Bates sent letters to police departments in Northern California pretending to be the Zodiac Killer. And they've connected all those together. And like, this has nothing to do with it. Now, I think what's interesting about this is how for decades, decades, people have included this as part of the case and how detrimental that may have been to the case because it's been used as part of psychological profiles. It's been used as trying to determine the identity of the person like, okay, then, well, this person probably, maybe they went to college down in Riverside and they moved up here. How many left turns and detours were caused by this? And I, and I'm not talking about the police because we don't know how much actual police investigation put merit into this theory, but all the citizens, detectives and authors and true crime podcasters who've wasted their breath and their air perpetrate, per, not perpetrating, but perpetuating something that wasn't real. This exact thing is why I stopped doing true crime. Because I got to a certain point where I realized I don't know which of the details here are true. I know some of them are true, but are there certain ones that I don't know? And how can I put things out into the public saying I'm trying to help solve this crime when I could be including stuff that's outright false and I don't know it? And therefore, training other people and putting other people in the mindset of believing that that thing is also true. There's a terrible responsibility there. And when you actually start to look at a lot of the true crime that's done out there, you know what kind of research these people are doing? They're literally pulling their information from other blogs, from other podcasts. And they're using that as evidence. They're not even following the the evidence to the source. So who knows how many things are being spread out there that are just not true and they're making the ability to solve these cases worse rather than better. And that was why I couldn't continue to do it. The case that I was working on was the case of a little girl who had gone missing. And I'm not even going to go into the details. That's why I'm not even saying the name of the case, any of that. I've talked about it before. If you really want to know, you could probably find it. But there was one specific detail that I started to see conflict on. And it was about the father and what days the father worked. And whether he was working or wasn't working on the day that the girl disappeared. And I saw... 90, probably 90 to 95% of the podcasts, blogs, newspaper articles, magazine articles about the case, all perpetrating the idea that the father was at work that night. But when I went back to the source and I started reading newspaper articles that were written the day after the disappearance, 
newspaper articles that were written from direct interviews with the parents, the wording wasn't clear. And I started to think actually that in fact, the father was at home that whole night. And I'm not saying that uh, I think that the father was guilty or anything like that. I'm saying that this detail, this one detail, which may be in some degree, to some degree, a minor detail, had been told, in my opinion, quite possibly falsely across all of the true crime genre and all of the true crime coverage of this one case. And in reality, what it probably comes down to is somebody misread the wording and made an assumption that it meant this. And then everybody built their case off of that. And then other people built their case off of that. And other people built their case off of that. And so this lie just perpetuated and it became the official story. And it's probably not true. Just like this here. Sherry Joe Bates was the first victim of the Zodiac. No. Guess what? She wasn't. And for 50 years, we've been telling the story that she was. Is there any wonder that no one knows who the Zodiac was? Because this case is full of those things. In fact, there's a, excuse me, there are a couple books called The Great Zodiac Hoax. I think one is The Great Zodiac Hoax of 1986. The other one, I think, is Great Zodiac Zodiac hoax of 1969 the author is a little out there and remember i was talking about earlier how you you're not sure if you can can stay on the ship with the captain you know that sometimes the author you're like i'm not sure if i trust you i started to feel that with this guy but then i went as i went in further i started to look at more and more of this case i started thinking Whoa, because he had, he did something I hadn't seen in a while. He would say, he'd make an argument. He'd say, here is the actual photocopy of the written statement that the officer took with the witness. Like he was going back to the original source. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, going back to the first interview with the news agencies that were on the scene. Better than that is to have the actual police files. And that's what this guy had because a lot of this stuff um, has been made public. So I don't want to go into his theory because I think one day I might have to do an episode about his theory. That's like three times I've said I'm not going to tell you something because I want to do an episode on it. But that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. You just have to stick around. But I will say this, uh, the, there's a great possibility that the Zodiac killer case is not in any way what it's been perpetuated as for 50 years. It's a big thing. That's a 50 years of my, my off might be that's 60 years, 1967. Well, this is 55 years, I guess. Uh, wow. Okay, 1969, actually. So, yeah, 50 years. So, yeah, I saw this and I was like, wait a minute. 
because it's interesting because you haven't had any Zodiac news for so long. And then I think it was last year, they finally solved one of the ciphers that they were unable to solve, which actually gave them nothing. There's no, no viable evidence at all because yeah, they're probably bullshit. So that's, that's what's going on in my head. I did all right. 15 minutes on that. That's not bad. Starting to get these small talkers. Uh, distinctly different vibe this week, don't you think? A little bit more radial. Maybe that's because I, I made a determination uh, this time. I wasn't going to go in and edit. I did edit the last one a lot. But there was one point, I think, in the episode where my brain, I just had a brain fart in the middle of the last episode. And there was like a 20 second pause while I had to get my brain back on track. Yeah, I removed the 20 seconds because no one wants to just sit there and listen to. Yeah, right. That sucked. And that was probably five seconds. Mm. I would recommend this. Having listened to myself, I do sound better on, on 1.7 to 1.8 times speed. <laughs> is that a weird recommendation? I listen to everything at that speed. So, uh, and yes, I listen to my own episodes. The reason I listen to my own episodes is because having published a book, um, that I edited probably six or seven times and I had four or five other people read through and edit. And still after all that, when my book went out, there were two typos. So when I finish recording this, I listen to it once through and I edit usually, um, even though I'm planning on not doing it in editing, I will sit and listen to it. So make sure, because that's when you find out, oh my God, my microphone wasn't plugged in or, oh my God, there was some electronic buzz that was going on. If you've ever listened to a podcast where that, where you got an episode and that happened, that's lazy podcaster right there. That's someone who did not want to listen to their own audio. Shame on them. For God's sakes, if you're going to take on the responsibility, at least listen to yourself. And then after I export it, I will usually, I don't listen to the whole episode on the computer, but I will listen to it. One more time to make sure that the sound is okay, because after that I've done the EQing and all of that, so that I can hear what that sounds like. And then the third time is after I publish. I publish, and the first thing I do is I go over and I grab my phone, and I wait for the episode to drop into my podcast app, and I sit and I listen to it. One more chance to make sure that I didn't flub something real big. You know, sometimes like it happens. I remember when I was doing vlogging, I, this, I was uh, on a road trip. My, my friend, uh, story time, story time. Uh, I was on a road trip with my friend, John. He was moving up to uh, Washington and I was helping him move. So we were in a two car rally for the weekend. Uh, he was driving the U-Haul truck and I was driving uh, his car. 
and uh, we stopped midway in Medford to stay with his grandfather. And uh, the whole time that we were going up, I was vlogging. I was filming little bits of stuff. You know, we stopped for lunch, filmed a little bit of that, blah, blah, blah. Because I was doing daily vlogs at the time. I was putting out five, ten minute video every day. And I remember when we got to his grandfather's house in Medford, I was like, all right, we, we ate, relaxed a little bit, hung out. His grandfather went to bed. I think John went to bed. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta edit my vlog right now. I gotta do it. And I sat there for like an hour editing the vlog. And when I export, it usually took about uh, 10 minutes back then, maybe to export the video after. And I hit export and it took forever. I mean, it took, I think it took like an hour. I ended up falling asleep and waking up to the file finished and then posting it in the middle of the night. And I didn't, I was, I was so confused, but I was so tired, you know, cause we'd been driving for like nine hours, 10 hours that day. And the next day, you know, it had been out in the public and everything. The next day I found out why it took so long to export because I had my five minute, six minute, maybe, maybe 10 minute episode. And instead of going, okay, here's where the episode ends. Just export these 10 minutes. It exported the whole project, which means that there was, after the 10 minute of episode, there was like 40 minutes of nothing, 40 minutes of blank. And then like five minutes of completely unedited, like, uh, just footage that I, I had basically, I had cut stuff off of this footage from when I was, uh, using the camera in the car. And then I'd taken the piece that I cut off and just scooted them off to the right. Well, that got included in the video and it was like some embarrassing stuff. It was like me singing along to music and stuff like that. Stuff that I didn't want to put in the episode. And there's probably at least one of you. I can think of one person in particular, Trista, if you're listening, you might remember that episode because you were watching the vlogs back then. I think maybe you were one of the people that commented about me singing music in the car. So anyways, let's stop talking. I, uh, I'm going to watch TV. I want to relax. So if you enjoyed the episode, hey, let me know. Commenting up on the website. I've got Facebook commenting up on there because uh, I talked about this in greater detail with the patrons yesterday, but the discus commenting that I put on the website sucked. Huge ads, huge, ugly ads all over the website. And that's just not acceptable. And I wasn't going to pay them $15 to make them go away. So we got Facebook ads. We got Facebook uh, commented on there. I'm not moderating anything. So if you guys are jerks, that's your problem. <laughs> Everybody knows your real name because it's Facebook. But uh, if you don't have Facebook like me and you want to leave a comment about an episode, just use the contact tab and send me an email or even better, use the little blue button at the bottom of every screen. Send me a voice message. And I want to say something about voice messages as well. Guys, here's, here's what I'm imagining in my mind. 
is don't think about the voice message as a way to, um, that last episode was wonderful. I mean, obviously I want to hear that, but you don't have to do that. Nobody really wants to like, very often wants to like leave a voice message to praise me. But what you can do is, uh, tell me a story, tell me a joke, um, ask me a question because I'll probably answer it in an episode, especially now that we have the small talk format. Or maybe you ask a question that's interesting enough that like when I go to answer it, I realize, oh man, I'm going to actually write this out and make one of the other episodes with this. Just use the inbox, use the voicemail inbox and have fun with it. You know, I'm not asking for you to harass me or troll me, but you know, whatever you, some of you probably will anyways, we can't stop you from doing it anyhow, but enjoy it. And as I said, uh, last time I mentioned it, just let me know uh, when you leave the message, whether it's okay that I use your audio. Because I might want to. You might be that entertaining. I am I will say this. I'm not going to, after watching the Joker movie, I am not going to be Maury. And I'm not going to take something that you say in a voice message and put it in an episode and ridicule you. It's not going to happen. Because as it says in the description of the show, one of the things... I talk about is not being a dick and that would be being a dick. So if you want to enjoy yourselves and leave me a message, I would look forward to it. I would, I do look forward to it already. I don't know how would this imaginary future. Uh, if you want to become a patron, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash chat hole, join the community over there, trying, trying to get all of you to uh, communicate with me, whether it is, uh, through the website or as patrons, because patrons, uh, you have, you can comment on things in Patreon, but there's also the private messaging, which is another way to communicate. I just, I like to know stuff about you guys. I like to hear your thoughts and your questions and your stories and your jokes and all of that stuff, because, uh, otherwise it's just me looking at a screen, talking into a foam, black foamy dick. I am being naughty this episode. So please, if you want to become a patron, go ahead. I'm doing some uh, behind the scenes type stuff. Basically what I talk about over there right now is uh, I do an episode kind of like this, non-scripted, where I talk about what I'm thinking about. Um, in this last one, I talked about stuff going on behind the scenes with the podcast. And then I also talked for a while about, uh, stuff going on behind the scenes with my novel. And as more of you start expressing yourselves on Patreon, well, maybe there's other stuff, you know, that I don't have to talk about that forever. There can be other things that are discussed there. I've been, and what I would like all of you, whether patrons or not to let me know as well is. Are you interested in Reddit at all? Like I, I read Reddit. Um, if I made a subreddit, is that something that you guys would dig on? You know, like we could put the episodes up there. You can discuss the episodes on Reddit. I could post other things. We can discuss other things. Um, stuff that might make it into a small talk episode. Maybe we can, I could throw it on the Reddit and you guys can all have uh, thoughts and input on it before I even come into the episode to talk about it. Who knows? So many possibilities. So communicate with me. Let me know what's going on in that head of yours. 
I don't care what state you're in. I don't care what country you're in. I don't care who you vote for. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care who you sleep with. Just tell me what's going on with you. So that's enough. I've, I've, I picked, I'm, I'm doing this on mic drop thing. I don't know if you can hear it because of the sweet, sweet noise reduction on here, but I keep throwing my pen down on the desk when I think I'm done. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that I tell you guys to do with any of these episodes? Go to itmattersbutdoesn't.com. I have a newsletter that I don't send out very often. So if you're looking for a low committal newsletter, uh, it's basically just links on what I'm up to. Uh, that's about it. So I should go watch TV now, right? I could stop talking. Is that okay? And, uh, I suppose I should do our, our ending. I like, I actually, I make fun of people to do formulaic things, but I like, um, the ritual of doing our ending because I like every time reminding you and myself when I say it to be kind. And, uh, what's our second one today? Be cautious on what you spread around as truth. Because sometimes the letter might not be written by the killer. All right. I love you, babies. Talk to you soon.